The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine Podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, September the 3rd on CBC Radio. For many, Labor Day weekend is the last hurrah before we're back to school, back to the grind, back to reality. So today, we're sharing some life lessons to help you get through. For example, how to be an adult, no matter how old you are. As well, you'll hear about the winding roads Jerry Saltz took to become a top art critic. In fact, he was a long-haul trucker before he found his calling in middle age. You'll also hear his perspective on, well perspective. And maybe that will give you a new view on whatever your calling may be. Later on, we're all bound to screw up on life's journey. But as Terry O'Reilly will tell us, there's much to be learned from failure that can lead to success. And after that, our Sunday documentary will sound out a Canadian musical mystery and the claim of a stolen song. It all starts right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. So have you noticed how some people have turned the word adult from a noun to a verb? Like, adulting is hard, or I just don't feel like adulting today. And it often comes from those who know they're supposed to be all grown up, but feel they're missing the manual for this thing we call adulthood. Well, look no further, because Julie Lithcott-Hames has written one. She's the former dean of freshmen at California Stanford University. She's also the mom of two young adults. And her latest book is full of philosophical and more practical advice. It's called Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And I spoke with Julie about it and so much more back in June of 2021. How's adulting going so far for you this week? For me, I'm 53. Doesn't that mean I'm a fully baked adult? Ha ha. I don't know, does no. it? Exactly. Good question. Um, look, adulting is about knowing you're more or less responsible for yourself. And I'm doing a pretty good job of being more or less responsible for myself, regulating my emotions as much as possible, setting some intentions about what I want to accomplish, leaning into my loved ones, uh, trying to behave kindly to other humans, paying my bills. Uh, that's adulting. And this week, I'd give myself a... Uh, a gold star for how maybe a silver star. There have been a few bumps, but that's normal. That's part of adulting. Okay, congrats on star earning. What are you were saying? Like all the things that you accomplished in adulting this week. I'm I'm like giving myself no stars this week, but you know, <laughs> next week's a new week. Right. Um, 
I know already that some of our listeners are rolling their eyes because they're hearing this this term, this actual word, adulting, that you have said and I have said. How did this term get traction? And beyond what you've just said, like fill in the gaps a bit more, what does it really mean? It's the grammar nerds that are rolling their eyes, Pia, right? <laughs> right? They can't invent a new word. Guess what? Yes, people do. And who's responsible? Millennials. And when did it happen? Oh, 12, 15 years ago, they began saying, I don't know how to adult. I don't want to adult. Adulting is scary. And that's a truth for them. And I'm not here to quibble with the largest generation in history. I'm here to say, wow, things have really changed such that this period of life you enter if you've survived childhood feels daunting. I'm not rolling my eyes at the word. I'm not rolling my eyes at them. I'm this older person, Gen X, really compassionate, saying, wow, okay, so what has changed? Let's validate that. Let's sit with you as you experience those realities and let me root for you in making your way forward. The simple definition, Pia, is adulting is the bookends between childhood and death. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Just to be frank, in childhood, You start out in someone else's body. You are then carried on their body, carried on their hip, held by their hand. That's childhood. And then slowly in childhood, we let go as parents of the hand. Okay, so in childhood, you are more or less the responsibility of someone else. And at the very end of your life, unless it comes suddenly, you are typically in the care once again of people who are more hale and hearty and capable than you. So adulting is the sweet set of decades, we hope, of health and wellness and of personal choice making and accountability and responsibility. And it's on you. And that's terrifying. But it's also awesome. That's adulting. (laughs) Okay, I want to stick with the um, and I think you're convincing them not to be naysayers. But maybe there's a few sticklers still out there. Because as you say, look, I'm not here to judge. I'm listening to the to the younger adult generations, that's millennials and now Gen Zers or Zers, um, who say, look, it, it is hard adulting these days. And as you said, look, I'm a Gen Xer, so am I, Julie. Is it really, just to, just to talk to the naysayers, is it really any harder adulting these days than it used to be? And if so, why? Yeah, it is. Let's go macroeconomics for a second. Where I live, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, And in many places in America and many places in Canada, it is simply not possible for a young person to leave home and earn wages that will pay for a one-bedroom apartment, okay? Wages and salaries have, in many places, not kept up with the cost of living. Add to that the fact that to go to university in America, I realize it's different in Canada, we, many of our students take on enormous student loan debt because of the cost of university and the lack of support in the form of scholarships. And so they have this student loan burden because they've been told you got to go to college because a decent job requires a college education. They take on all this debt and then their salary slash wages can't keep up with the cost of living in the town or with this debt burden. So things are much harder at a very basic Uh, money sense than was the case for older generations. You know, the minimum wage was created in our country following World War II, following the Great Depression, actually. And it was meant to support a man, his wife, and one child. And Mm. the notion that minimum wage in the U.S. could support one person with a decent quality of life, let alone three, is utterly laughable. So that's one example of what has changed and why young people might have to live at home 
as they're in their 20s, even if they have a college degree, university degree, because they cannot afford to live in the very city or town in which they were raised. It's not possible. And I would just say things aren't, I mean, listening uh, to the younger adults uh, uh, in Canada, things aren't um, as different as, as people might think between the U.S. and Canada. Lots of people having to take on that student debt. University college is more expensive, so it takes a lot more time to spend that, not being able to afford to live in a big city if that's where they need to go to school. All those things. I mean, there's a lot of similarities. And, and the minimum wage, of course, in many places, um, not a livable wage for a lot of people. Um, but I want to pick up on what you're just saying, look, uh, this going to school thing, so finishing your education and getting a job. These are two of the five markers that we've traditionally sort of um, used to define what adulthood looks like. So you, you finish your education, getting a job, leaving home, getting married and having kids. And again, just in full transparency and not to be a jerk face, but on my part, check, 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 right? And for our generation, the Gen Xers and, and older that is a marker of success, quote unquote, success for a lot of people. How relevant are those markers to the reality of being an adult on the younger side of adult in 2021? Largely less relevant, Pia. Here's why. Uh, finish education. Why are you going to finish your education at 22 or 18 if you're going to live to be 90 or 100? We know education should be continually accessed throughout life to level up your skills, to pivot to a completely new career just for personal edification and enrichment. So finish education, that's an outdated term. Um, leave home, as I've said, maybe you can't afford to. It's not about leaving home. It's about wherever you live, whether with your parents or with an extended pod of your own peers, are you behaving as an adult, taking care of body, bills and belongings, taking care of business? It's not where you live. It's how you show up where you live. And then marry slash have kids. Boy, this harkens back to a time when a woman went from being the property of her dad to the property of her husband. It's very gendered and it's very heteronormative. Today, you don't have to get married to be an adult. You're not called a spinster. I mean, remember, right? We are free. We are freer than ever. We are liberated. This is the 21st century. You do not need to marry to have kids. You do not need to have kids if you are married. You can make those choices. They are largely up to you. And so there's a lot of freedom and flexibility now, which wasn't available in the 20th century or prior. And I think that wide open flexibility, which requires choice making, might be a little daunting. And that's where we get to why they might feel stuck. They feel like, well, I'm supposed to be doing this, or everyone around me is doing this. And my point in the book is, hey, this is yours to craft. You are the architect. There is no path. There is no right track. It's not about what anyone else says has to happen. What has to happen is you have to figure out who you are, what you're good at, why you're here on the planet, and give yourself permission to be that person. I, I guess, Julie, like, you know, and sometimes the, the, the confines of life are helpful in that, you, you know, knowing what you're supposed to do um, gives you a structure. And, and you're saying like, look, you got to figure this out for yourself because there, there isn't that same structure of what's expected of you. But do you think that is at the same time it being freeing for younger adults, also a bit debilitating? Like it's like, oh, gosh, this is all up to me. I, I, I have to figure it out how to show up, as you say, where you live. I absolutely think that. I think it's both and. It's liberating and it's daunting. And I think what fills the gap is advice and guidance from those of us who are older, whether we're um, sitting down with our nieces and nephews or our friends' kids or uh, younger people in our community. We ought to be sharing the stories of, hey, this is a choice I made. Here's how it went. Here's what I did next. The more that they can hear, oh, this person I respect, they took this path and it was terrible and they chose something different and they found joy. Awesome. Oh, this person 
person I respect had a completely different way through life. But it also turned out to be awesome. The more they can hear the stories of the myriad ways in which humans adult, the more Hmm. secure they will feel in, hey, all right, fine, maybe I can give myself permission to head out in the direction that feels right to me, knowing plenty of other people around me have done the same. Right. Okay, I want to talk about some of the concepts in your book, because your book covers a lot of ground. And I I should just say, uh, this is not about the nitty gritty of, you know, becoming an adult and how to cook dinner or how to sew a button. As you say, that's what YouTube is for. (laughs) Yep. Uh, But you cover these bigger concepts like fending, as in fending for yourself. What does that look like these days? And why is that important? Okay, so we're mammals. And uh, we're mammals with cell phones and cars. But Every single mammal parent, whether human or otherwise, succeeds biologically if our offspring can fend for themselves, right? When we're dead and gone, we parents, one day we'll be dead and gone. We need to know deep in our bones so that our DNA gets passed on. We need to know that our offspring can fend for themselves and have offspring of their own. That's our biological imperative. What it means is... As I alluded to earlier, taking care of business, I call it, uh, I, I refer to it as taking care of business, bills, body, belongings. Fending is knowing you can procure shelter, food, pay for the things that matter most to you, like food and shelter, but also Hulu and Netflix. You know, it's it's <laughs> it's it's on you is the point. Fending is, okay, I've got to, and I'm smacking my hands together here, like, I'm going to take care of it. You know, I'm going to do it. I, I took care of business. It's on me. I did it. That's fending. It's not, oh, I'm amazing or, oh, I got a raise. It's, I know how to look after my body, my bills, my belongings. A little step further is, I know how to be good to other humans because humans are key. You know, it's fending is the very, very basic stuff of getting through life. Didn't we just used to call that responsibility? We did, but I think fending is, it's presumably a synonym. It does imply a little bit of an edge. It applies a little bit of uh, precariousness. You know, fending for oneself implies a little bit like you're out there on that limb and it's your limb and you're there, you know, and, and, and that's important because that's what impels us for that's when you're fending, then you develop more agency. Every time you take care of business, your psyche goes, Hey, I handled that. I'm capable. What am I going to do next? There is a little bit of treacherousness to this terrain and we must walk it because that's how we forge a healthy adult self. Hmm. So you, uh, in terms of talking about forging a healthy adult self, like you do write about some some of the practical stuff, the dealing with money, which you've mentioned, the taking care of your physical health and your mental health, which we hear so much about today, uh, and and rightly so. But you also, Julie, give some more surprising advice, things that like wouldn't be like, you know, okay, I can think of that one on my own. And one of them is this case that you make... um, for why people should talk to strangers. You encourage this. You're like, go talk to strangers, people. Why do you tell them to do this? Well, first of all, I have to counteract this absurd notion in childhood that they've been raised with, don't talk to strangers, (laughs) right? When Stranger Danger was born in roughly 1983, that's when parents started, you know, preventing kids from having the life experiences that would 
um, enable them to feel confident and competent around strangers, advocate for themselves, treat this other person with respect. We have this overbroad rule, don't talk to strangers, which means young people emerge from their homes and high schools and go out into the world of work or university or the military, and they don't feel comfortable. They might even say they're scared slash don't know how to simply talk to somebody. And we can point fingers like the naysayers and eye rollers that you alluded to at the top of the show. They may be naysaying and eye rolling now, and I'm here to say stop. It is not the fault of the young person who was raised that way. This is on us as parents. We have done this. This was bad advice. You do need to talk to strangers. Why? Because humans are everywhere, and everyone outside of your family is inherently at first a stranger. So you got to lean into that. you got to seek to interact and get to know. You have to figure out how to communicate and compromise in order to advance your own needs and goals and also to show up usefully in the lives of others. Research shows, Pia, that it's the quality of our human relationships that end up predicting whether we have a long and healthy life. It's not our cholesterol level at age 50. It's the quality of our most primary relationships at age 50 that predicts whether we will or will not live a long, healthy life for many, many more decades. Okay. Um, We hear also these days a a a lot about self-esteem and children and how I don't know maybe we talk about it more how um, that's so important right we we need to build up our kids self-esteem but you argue that something called self-efficacy is more important why what what is that why and why is it more important self-efficacy slash agency is that intrinsic sense in our own psyche I know I exist because when I do things there's a result Um, And when we overhelp as parents, we deprive them of developing self-efficacy because basically we've achieved the result or partially achieved the result for them. And in their psyche, they know I didn't do that. And that leads to learned helplessness, as has been labeled in the field of positive psychology. And that leads to anxiety and depression in kids. And oh, by the way, all, all of these things are correlated. It should not be a surprise. So... Instead of self-esteem, which we thought mattered back in the 80s, it was this thing that was developed, give them a trophy just for being on the soccer team, not for being good, but just for being, give them a certificate, give them a ribbon. The only people, as it turns out, that benefited from that were the manufacturers of the trophies and certificates and ribbons (laughs) who made all of this money (laughs) off of the self-esteem movement. No, the we kids, have so many no, participation, look, participation exactly. ribbons and trophies. <laughs> exactly. So, and it's become Pia. Great job! You slid down the slide. Perfect, <laughs> perfect painting. How about this one? What, perfect. You didn't hit Billy. Like stop, stop saying perfect for every little thing. You you raise children who expect to hear perfect. Great job in university. In the workplace, if they don't get that constant feedback of, you're amazing, oh my gosh, they think they're not amazing or they quit their job because they think their boss is mean. Like, look how we have undermined their chances for thriving when we raise them with the notion that every tiny thing they do has the chance to be perfect. You're not perfect. You're here to learn and grow. Listen to Queen Elsa from Frozen. Let it go. Okay, so Frozen, <laughs> we could probably sit here and diagnose Frozen and all the messages it sends that may have led to some of these challenges that we're facing societally, but we'll leave it there. Let me ask you to give a, a bit of advice, whether someone is moving on 
to high school, from high school, college or university, and and venturing out into a new, big, uncertain world. Um, What's your advice to them? You have an inner voice in you that wants you to be uh, listening to it. Uh, That is your voice, and it's crying out for your attention, because what's also in your head is the voice of your parents, your extended family, maybe your whole ethnic community, all of Canada. I don't know. You've got all this sense of the people who are telling you what to do. Listen for your own voice. Ask yourself, what would I study if it was just up to me? What would I pursue for work? If it was just up to me, if no one else was judging, what would I choose? Another way into that answer is, what do I know I'm good at? What do I know I love? And let me find work or study at the intersection of those things, because you got to both be good at it and love it for it to be meaningful and rewarding. And finally, who's in my way? Who are the people I'm afraid to share these things with? That's real and valid. Tell that truth to yourself and then get some support, whether it's from a mentor or an older relative or a therapist in having that tough conversation with whomever might be preventing you from leaning in to the life you know is yours. Thank you um, for all of this. I need to repattern a little bit in my life, which is okay, right? Yes, um, absolutely. As, as you move along, right? It's not a failure of parenting or, or, or the children and their adulting. It's just, we just can learn things and get better at it. So thanks for all this. I'm delighted to have been in conversation with you, Pia. Thanks so much for having me. Julie Lithgott-Hames is the author of Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. And you know what Julie said about listening to your own voice? Well, Jerry Saltz embodies that to a T. It wasn't always that way. We'll get to that in a sec. But here's what you need to know about Jerry. He's an art critic for New York Magazine. Some say the greatest art critic working today. He's even nabbed a Pulitzer Prize. But Jerry's not what you likely imagine when you hear the term art critic. Because the way he writes, the way he talks and posts on Instagram doesn't just help make sense of what's happening in the art world. It also brings magic back to something that can often feel intimidating and impenetrable. Jerry and I talked about all this and his winding life path, as well as his book, Art is Life, back in October. How much art do you take in? Like how many galleries or museums are you going to on a a weekly basis? I am one of the last of my kind, Pia meaning I am a weekly critic, and in my case, I took on being a daily critic, meaning I will actually post what I think of as art criticism, at least, though many will disagree, on Instagram. Please follow me at Jerry Saltz (laughs) two, three, four times a day. It doesn't mean I'm doing Instagram all the time, but that is what I do. I see about 25 to 30 shows a week in New York. I'm not paid to go to Brooklyn, let alone to Documenta or Venice to hang out in the cool lobbies. Of course, I'm envious and want to go with all those other curators that review each other's shows and are on each other's symposia and who then get photographed for all the social pages. Of course, I'm eaten with envy. (laughs) But I love my job. And then within a few five, six days after seeing the show, first I go home and worry and feel miserable and eat pizzas (laughs) and think about calling my editor to quit. Because, of course, what do I have to say new about Kara Walker or Byzantium or any subject, really? Because We all wake up at 3 a.m. with demons in our heads saying, you're no good. 
you're a fake. You're too short. You have bad ankles. Your hair is no good. <laughs> None of this is real. You, in, in my case, I say, well, you have no degrees. You never went to school. You were a long distance truck driver, for God's sake, until you were 40, dying to get into the art world, but didn't know what to do. I had never written a word in my life. Not one. I'm a terrible reader. And I decided to become an art critic because I thought I could meet women. That never worked. <laughs> I thought I could make. My, thank you. <laughs> you can see my vibe doesn't put it off. It's a nightmare. Um, I thought I would make money. That's really never going to happen. And thought I could get famous. The truth is the most famous art critic you all could name of the last hundred or so years would be Clement Greenberg, probably. And 90% of you have only read one or two of his essays. Mm -hmm. So criticism is very here and very gone. And then after I talk to my demons and they fill up my mouth with words, I do what I tell all artists to do. Get to work, you big babies. Hmm. Work, work, work. And then I begin writing. I never know what I'm going to say until I've said it. I'm as surprised by many of the things I write as some people may be to read it. And that's my week. Okay, so let's correct some things, Jerry. First of all, you said um, you got into this business to meet meet the ladies and you met your wife along the way. So that's a you did meet the ladies, the, the perfect lady. Yeah, okay. Bingo. The second thing you said, and I think, you know, people might have thought you were making a joke, but you were not. Before you were a critic, you were a you know, self-identified failed artist, and you did drive a truck. So lots of people are going to know you. This whole humble thing that no one knows me is a little bit of a, a ruse because you are renowned in the art world, but a lot of people listening will be introduced to you for the first time today. So help us understand how you got to where you are. Um, and let's start with mm -hmm. the self-identified, quote, failed artist. I wanted to be an artist. I started making art in my 20s. I did pretty good. I was selling my work, showing it. I started an art gallery, an artist-run gallery in Chicago, where I'm from. I won the National Endowment for the Arts grant, which was an enormous sum of, I think, $1,500, which I took and used it to move to New York City to become an artist. And within 12 to 24 months, P.I. would say that the demons got the best of me and I stopped working. And I really was in a state of misery, envy, anger, self-pity, the whole late 20s walking nervous breakdown nine yards. Hmm. I'm sorry about that. The, the, when you talk about the demons, I mean, it's the demons, you know, of doubt and not believing in yourself, fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I didn't actually, I was never institutionalized, never on medication, thank God. But I was a nervous wreck and um, self-exiled from the art world and became this long-distance truck driver because I thought it was cool. I can only tell people that are listening to this now that think it might be cool, not cool. All you see is 100 yards to your left and 100 yards <laughs> to your right, and you see it for over 1 million miles. And that's how I learned to write in the trucks. I would read 
art form magazine. And I taught myself to read, write by reading these reviews. And this is how I used to write. The late capitalist post-Marxist object of the simulacra finds itself lost in a haptic limnality of a post-Baudrillardian Deleuzian, you know, what the hell was I talking? It didn't matter. I loved writing it. And people would go, you're smart, Jerry. And I would think, that's cool. And then to finish this, one day, because all deadlines are sent from hell, Via heaven, <laughs> via heaven is there was no time to lie and obfuscate in my work and speak in this horrible critical genre that is built, I think, to either protect the writer or just say nothing and sound great. I, because I had procrastinated, like all of you big babies listening, <laughs> had no time. And I have never missed a deadline. That's one of my most proud statements. I had to write something and accidentally wrote what I really thought, which was a lot of negative thoughts about somebody's work and in my own idiot voice. Hmm. And I knew in that second I had discovered something, that the blood had pumped into my wings and that I could fail flamboyantly as myself which is what I want all of you to do, fail in my own voice, telling my own story the best I could and making myself as radically vulnerable as I think artists are, frankly. And I began doing that. I was then about 45 years old and a baby just beginning. If you're just taking in the advice you're hearing through your radio, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with the renowned art critic Jerry Saltz. His new collection of writing is called Art as Life. So Jerry, anyone wanting your opinions on art over the past couple of decades, I think is in for a real treat with this book, because there are dozens and dozens of essays and columns from that period. So let's do this. I want to look at one rant and one rave, and I'm going to start with the rant. I want everyone to hold on to their hats when I tell them who you're going to rant about. Norman Rockwell, American illustrator, painter, known for his Saturday Evening Post covers, who ended up having some museum retrospectives. Jerry, if I asked 100 people, hey, who doesn't like Norman Rockwell? I don't think a brave soul would put up their hand and say, nah, I'm not into that guy. But you are not, so tell me why. I love Norman Rockwell. It's his paintings I didn't (laughs) like. And that was the point of the review. You tripped me up there. You're making me sound like a pointy-headed ogre. Here's what that review was about. We all love Norman Rockwell. It's like M.C. Escher. There are pornographic sides to our taste. We love things that maybe we're not supposed to even like. You can't not love Norman Rockwell. There's the boy coming home from World War II as a soldier and mom is sticking out her head and the doggies running at him and the mailman in the neighborhood so excited. The argument I was making then, and I will stick to it, is as illustrations, as images, those things are amazing. They're like Steven Spielberg, a storyteller par excellence. However, as a physical object, as something we call paintings and their idea of how it's made, how the materials surface, marks, 
opacity, viscosity, all of that seemingly boring stuff that shouldn't mean anything, frankly, means everything. Hmm. Else, every crucifixion would be the same just because it had powerful subject matter. Every country and Western song would be the same. But then in one day, Dolly Parton writes, Jolene and I Will Always Love You. They both use the same three chords every country and Western song uses, and yet both prolapse, herniate into an an another world entirely and that's what I was trying to talk about with Norman Rockwell. He doesn't make it to the material world. I would recommend, frankly, that all people see subject matter first and then stop seeing it and see what the music is, what the lyrics, what the tone, what the beat, what everything is. Where does it take you as a thing? And okay. I don't think his things take you far. Okay. That, that's totally fair. And I should just say <laughs> that, you know, your Rockwell review is a bit of a rant. You generally don't go in for the big scathing takedowns, right? So so maybe this is an anomaly. Fair? No, I do a fair share, <laughs> but go on. <laughs> okay, I'm no. just saying, we're, let's get to the balance. Let's talk about a rave, because in Art is Life, your book, you write about the most powerful artwork you've ever seen. Not in Manhattan, where you are, mm. but you went into a cave in France. So set that scene for us. My wife and I went in the southern French Pyrenees, just over the border from Spain, to a small cave called Neu, N-E-A-I-U-X, something French. I cannot figure N -I -A -U -X. out how to yeah. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> and we were brought in deep into a very deep, dark, cold cave. Our guide had one flashlight, and she shined a light into a place called the gallery and a thunderbolt went off in me. I saw mammals of every kind, fish, space, line. And I understood instantaneously that all of our patriarchal mumbo jumbo that these were witch doctors and men painting back in the caves I suddenly understood that these were people who looked at mammals for tens of thousands of years, understood how they grazed, how they drank water. You could see animals in rut and others in estrus. You could see how hair stood up on the back of backs when they were alarmed. You could see tigers, you know, something like a tiger chasing animals. I don't want to sound like Werner Herzog and, you know, <laughs> albino alligators. But I saw an idea of perspectival space and I saw the greatest mammals had ever been rendered in the history of our species and understood in that second that art was the greatest operating system that our species has ever developed to explore consciousness, the scene, in the unseen worlds. In the caves are handprints, thousands of them over the world. And now that we've researched them all, we know that half, 51% of those hands are female hands because they were in there. Many of these caves were not caves at the time. 
only 1% of 1% of 1% of all caves probably exist. They have to exist for tens of thousands of years at the exact humidity and exact temperature. If you disturb them once, they're gone. And finally, the third most popular thing in caves is what you used to do as kids. You'd look up naughty words or draw vulva or phalluses. That's the third most common thing in the cave. Mm. It tells you the kids are in there drawing wee-wees and poo-poos and Mm. all of this stuff. And it's all drawn over each other. And it told me that all art is contemporary art, that art may be using us to replicate itself, that it's part of a cosmic force that has been with us since before we were human beings, in closing, when Neanderthal made symmetrical hand stone axes, and now we know they painted them. Yeah. Why? And you and Jerry, you 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 talk about sort of seeing the sophistication, right? That sense of perspective from those painters from tens of thousands of years ago were using when art history would tell us that that kind of perspective was only invented in Florence, Italy in the 1400s. So it challenges our conventional wisdom, so to speak. Like all great art, like when you hear Dancing Queen by ABBA, it's only supposed to be a nothing light song, but it somehow is an updraft beneath your wings. You start to understand that in the last 150 years or so, we've made art something it never was, a noun. Art used to be voodoo, a way to cast spells, a way to get you pregnant or stop you from getting pregnant. Saints made portraits of God, and these portraits could heal you or kill you. Art has been a verb for 45,000 years, and we've made it into a noun. And I happen to think that all art is still a verb, and so do all artists. And so, you know, the ancient world, art world, is a far cry from the modern one, the galleries of Manhattan or Toronto or wherever else. And I suppose it's, you know, easy to be cynical, Jerry Saltz, about things when prices are astronomical, the the glitz, the glamour can seem so out of touch with reality. And I'm wondering for you, given your background and how you came to all of this, do you still love the art world today? I love the art world, Pia. It's my only family. I left home the night I graduated high school and never went back. It is my great, beautiful, dysfunctional family of wannabes and burnouts, drug addicts, self-styled geniuses, uh, needy people like me. Most people are not artists in the art world. They are critics or They might be on a radio show or they might be curators and there might be 10,000 other things to have this life lived in art. And I want to tell everybody, I know how hard it is to see through the awful filter of cynicism. It's impossible not to look at a fake fishy da Vinci that Christie's fobs off as the real deal for $400 million to a murderous sheik who then puts it on his yacht and not feel cynical or to watch mega galleries with 22 locations and artists attracted to the honey smell of money joining (laughs) these galleries and having 20 shows a year. And yet I want to tell you all that every work of art you see for an instant 
you're seeing something you've never seen before. Two, you are seeing something that took courage to make. I see through that money and believe instead that the artist who made this meant it, that doesn't make it good. Being sincere, Oscar Wilde said, all bad poetry is sincere. So sincerity is not a quality, but it is one of the qualities. I would only answer, try to see through the money. Understand that the failure of that vision, if you do not see through the money, is only 1% of 1% of 1% of the art world makes any money. And yet, in this horrendous upside-down world that we're living in, 99% of the attention and coverage is paid to that 0.1%. I would say, turn the page. It's fine to hate or like Jeff Koons and Damian Hurst. That's low-hanging fruit. Let them go. I would add, I want all of you artists, everybody out there, the good, the bad, and the very bad, to make money. I want you all to have a shot to feel your own agency, to fail in public, to dance naked in public the way you're supposed to, and we'll see the real you. So when I go into a gallery, even the big shiny ones, to me, give me a flashlight, put me in a closet, and I'll look at a painting. And I I will not miss a show at a mega gallery, and I won't miss a show at a mini gallery. Hmm. I, I do want to ask you about a couple of things that have happened recently. It's been interesting to watch that world clash with reality as climate activists have taken to galleries to protest two people through mashed potatoes on a glass-covered Monet painting in Germany. Just before that, two others splashed tomato soup on a Van Gogh painting in London. What do you make of this use of art as a vehicle for protest? It made me sick, sick to my stomach. I'm not sure you can make effective change or change of any kind by defacing, let's just say, one work of art to bring attention to another cause. I actually think it does something backwards. It brings attention to an absurdity and makes the protesters kind of squirrely and then keeps the art cynical because then everybody's talking about art as how much it costs. Oh, but it had glass. But I can tell you this much. Sooner or later, real art is going to be damaged. I know that. You know that. The truth is, you can't protect this work. Loans will become impossible. Insurance will go skyrocketing. The surveillance and security state in museums will be have to increase by 100. Ticket prices will go up. Am I against the climate? For God's sake, no. But when I wrote this, I don't have to tell you that the powers that be now tell us to compost. Don't use straws. Don't use paper bags. Wear this ribbon. Wear that ribbon. Meanwhile, they go on destroying the earth. And that allows us, the powerless, to just point fingers at each other. So when I was a little questioning of those protesters about what it accomplishes, if anything, the entire segment of the art world got to point a finger at me going, oh, Jerry Saltz is, you know, against calling attention to changing 
the climate, the truth is, I believe in paradox. And so does art, where more than one thing is true at a time. Only in a male platonic system would you think that one thing is true at a time. Um, it's insane that we've reduced each other and point fingers at each other. But that's what they have done to us. And frankly, it's why none of the art made in the 21st century has been made under anything remotely under normal circumstances. We in the West are watching the West attacked, usually from the far right wing. This has been going on in the United States. All art is political because the deep content of now is in your work, even if you're making landscapes and still lifes. And I tell you, all the systems are cracked and broken and all, I want to leave you on a happier note, all are in the process about to be repaired because we are living as art history is being rewritten. In the last five, 10 or more years, this awful market that all of you loathe and that cynical feeling we all feel, more women more underrepresented, more artists of color, more outsiders have been shown, sold, exhibited than at any point in the history of art. Museums are rehanging their collection. We will rewrite this history and it's being done on your watch, people. The system is broken, which means you are all remaking it. I cannot tell you what a thrilling task you're being given. I did it when I was very young. I moved into an art world in the 1970s that did not exist. And I got to make up my own phony baloney job out of whole cloth as a truck driver failed artist. That's you. You're as big a loser as I am. And you, if you just get to work and stay up late with your peers and put behind your terrible, bashful, shy insecurities. Everyone is insecure, everyone, and get to work. I promise you, when you're my age, you'll be spouting this nonsense like I am, <laughs> and you will rewrite the world. It is happening now. It's a triumph to me. The greatest moment of my entire art life, ironically. Jerry Saltz, I have to say, you know, I was told by a few of my colleagues how enjoyable it would be to um, talk with you. But really, it's been just an absolute joy to listen to you. Thanks for sharing with us. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. You're a good interview. It was tough. I've got tripped <laughs> up there. So thank you. I'm glad you had me on. I'm incredibly yeah. grateful. Jerry Saltz is an art critic for New York Magazine. His latest book is called Art is Life. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
let's just talk about screw-ups. You might, like I do sometimes, feel embarrassed when you make mistakes. We know we all make them. And if you look hard enough, you'll find mistakes and their lasting impact all over the place. Terry O'Reilly has shown that in the world of advertising on his CBC radio show, Under the Influence. And his latest book looks at lessons, discoveries, breakthroughs born out of blunder that go beyond the business world. The book is called My Best Mistake. And Terry and I talked about some of the best of the best back in October of 2021. On Under the Influence, you tell stories about brands and many highlight just how key mistakes have been to success. So what made you want to dig into the bigger value mistakes can have um, with this book? I've always been absolutely fanatically crazy about creative solutions. And if anybody's listened to the show or our podcast, you'll know that I'm endlessly fascinated by that aspect of humanity. And then when I thought about it, I thought, you know, there's, there's an even deeper thing to go after here, which is what happens not just when a, you know, somebody makes a little mistake and they end up creating a, an interesting product, but what happens when somebody has a catastrophic career mistake? Because there's two kinds of people in the world, I think, and that is people who experience a catastrophic mistake and then they run away. It's devastating. They recede into the woodwork. They try and forget, but they don't pursue their career anymore. They go in another direction. Then there's the other kind of person, which I'm fascinated with, who embraces the catastrophic mistake, even though they may have lost their revenue, their credibility, their job. And somehow they're so resilient that it ends up being the best thing that ever happened to them. And those are the people I was really most interested in. And you also write about your experience in, in this realm. I mean, in your in your job, in your show, you have uh, seen the value of those sort of imperfections, not of your first hand, but others in some of the advertising work you've also done. And you write in your book that back in the day when you were directing commercials, you didn't always go for the perfect take, quote unquote, the perfect take, but rather the take that simply felt the best. And uh, it may be hard to articulate, but can you try to explain what a best take feels like? I was primarily a humor director. So if someone had a funny commercial, they would come to me. So that was sort of my little niche. When I had actors in the room, and I always worked on the floor with actors, by the way, P. I didn't work from behind the glass. I sat out there in the booth with the performers because I wanted to feel their performance firsthand. So I was always chasing like perfect imperfection. In other words, hmm. a take might happen where the timing was slightly wrong or the inflection was slightly off or somebody mispronounced a word. But if it made me laugh, I would stick with it. I would go with that take or I would try and convince the writer who wrote the script to go with that take because it just felt better. It was just a funnier moment. It was more human rather than the absolute Frankenstein perfection of just cobbling together the best sentence from every take. I hated doing that. I liked a, an organic take, and I welcomed those little imperfections. Authentic, which has so much currency these days, right? And just funny. Um, just, like, just silly and funny. Just funny, fair enough. And you couldn't, and they couldn't do it a second time. That was the other interesting thing about those kind of takes, where they, their timing was off, or the mispronunciation, or the slight hesitation. When, when asked to do it a second time, it wasn't as fresh or as real. This book is uh, has many, many stories. It was kind of hard for us actually to 
choose which ones we wanted to talk to you about. But I said, I really want to talk about this first one. So I want to talk to you about the Swanson family. People of a certain age know <laughs> Swanson dinners. And this takes us back to the 1950s to um, American Thanksgiving. And the Swanson family, their business overestimated just how much demand there would be for turkey. So this wasn't like, hey, we need a you know couple dozen extra pounds of turkey or a couple extra two pounds for my home turkey dinner because I'm having a couple extra people and then there's tons of leftovers. They overestimated this by 260 tons. <laughs> like it was a massive <laughs> failure, a massive mistake. They didn't have the facilities to keep 260 tons of turkey fresh. Like they didn't have enough refrigerated facilities. Who would, Terry? Who yeah. would? <laughs> especially okay, in so tell us what they did with all these extra birds, because this is the story you tell in your book. First of all, they figured out a way to save the turkey from going bad. So they, they put it in ra refrigerated rail cars, because they could get enough rail cars to house 260 tons of turkey. But they had to keep the, tr this is the funny part, they had to keep the trains moving in order for the refrigeration to work. So they, while they tried to solve their problem, which was, what are we going to do with all this turkey? They had to keep the trains moving back and forth across the country to keep the, the, the refrigeration working, which is very funny. So these turkeys are, are logging miles while the <laughs> Swanson uh, company is trying to figure out what to do. Then one of their sales per, uh, people came up with this interesting idea. He'd just been on an airplane and he was served some air, airline food in a little metal tray. And he wondered if they could maybe create a turkey dinner using uh, a tray. And the tray would have different compartments, one for potatoes, one for the turkey, one for gravy, one for, uh, you know, stuffing. And they wondered if that was one way they could save the turkey. So they pursued that idea. And they had to figure out lots of things, Pia, like, you know, it all had to cook at the same time because you're putting it into the oven for 25 minutes. So the potato has to cook at the same rate uh, of time as the turkey and the turkey has to <laughs> cook at the same time as the dressing. Not get too dried out, all those things. Yeah. Right. And uh, and so they figured that out. And they weren't the first people to do that, by the way. There were a few other products on the market that were a frozen dinner. But here's the genius of it all. The year was 1954. It was the year where television really landed in North America, where suddenly people went from being radio-centric to discovering this new appliance in their living room. So Swanson created and, and trademarked the TV dinner. Even mm. the packaging looked like a TV. If you go back to that early Swanson packaging, it looked like it had wood paneling and it had tuning knobs on each side of the... <laughs> And it had like an oval shape, like the oval shape of the screen. And that was what saved everything. Because TV was so fantastic and so new and so space-aged that people gravitated to television, then gravitated to these Swanson TV dinners. And the little metal tray not only was a way to cook it, it was also a way to eat it. Once you peeled back the foil, you had an instant plate. Yeah. They went through their 260 tons in one year. In, less, in, in, just, in months, they went through it. In this story, uh, and so many others in your book, it strikes me, Terry, how important it is to be in the right place and the right era, right, for a mistake to turn into success. And in 1954, as you say, TV had just come into, well, it was relatively new in the United States. Um, is that what made it such an appealing concept? I think so, because remember, that was post-war. So there was a lot of optimism as uh, America got back to business, meaning, you know, companies didn't have to 
produce things for the war effort anymore to get back to producing, you know, um, brands and products, etc. And and the space race was on then. Like everything seemed futuristic in the 50s. So this Swanson TV dinner just fit right in there. It felt like a futuristic way to have dinner. So it was a perfect, you know, storm of events. I want to stick with sort of things of the past and another well-known um, thing that you talk about in the book. And this is the movie Jaws. Most people, I think, have seen Jaws or heard about Jaws. Um, and this is sort of representative of some of the stories in your book because it's about those stomach sinking moments when people drop a ton of cash into idea and then just sort of say float away on the water. And Jaws, the shark, is central to the 1975 classic. But you talk about a young Steven Spielberg insisting on bringing his vision of it to life to the tune of a quarter million dollars. This is 1975, quarter million dollars, lots and lots of money. Tell us about how the shark and Jaws came to be. Well, I think everybody knows the the shark malfunctioned and that Spielberg had to deal with that. I think I think that's a well-told story, but just backing up a beat or two, he was only 28 years old at the time. And he had that young director bravado where he didn't want to use miniature sharks in a in a tank somewhere. He wanted three full-sized animatronic sharks built for this film because he wanted to shoot it in the ocean. So Building those three sharks, as you said, took a big chunk of his budget because he needed one that swam left to right, one that swam right to left, and then one that looked at you head on with teeth. And he wanted eyeballs that rolled back. He wanted the gill slits to throb. Like he wanted it to be real. So they tested all out in Hollywood in, in their big freshwater tanks there and everything was great. They go out to Martha's Vineyard. They put uh, what he called, he called the, Bruce, uh, the shark Bruce after his lawyer. He put the the shark in the water and it sank to the bottom immediately. But what started to really happen, like that was just one problem. The next problem was everything started to seize up. All the the, uh, animatronics inside the shark started to corrode and started to malfunction. And the problem was, which I don't think a lot of people know, his big mistake was he didn't test the sharks in salt water. It was the saline that started eating into all the mechanics of the sharks. So you have to imagine that Steven, this is Steven Spielberg's big break as a, as a young film director. He's on location with all his crew, with all his cast, and his shark, the star of the film, is not working and will not work. So he goes into his hotel room depressed, sits there in the dark, and frets, wondering if this is the end of his career. And then he asks himself a very interesting question. He, he asked himself... What would Hitchcock do? And when he looked at the problem that way, he came up with a solution, which was what we can't see is the scariest thing of all. So then he decided to shoot a film that where you didn't see the shark, you only implied the shark. So if he had a fin and a tail fin going through the water, you would get a sense of how big the shark was. Or if you saw... You know, the shark dragging those big yellow um, barrels through, uh, through the water at a certain speed. You, you had a sense of how magnificent this beast was. And then, of course, in post-production became the ultimate fix where John Williams, the wonderful composer, came up with that, you know, infamous Jaws two-note motif, which then truly became the shark. So as the shark became, you know, came closer to camera, the music would get really loud. And then when the shark swam away, the music would get very, would, would slowly disappear. You only saw the shark, Pia, for four minutes. 
the full shark. This blew my mind. This blew my mind, Terry, when I read this. I know. Because you think you've seen it the whole movie, haven't you? Yes, exactly. Four minutes of screen time. This is a bit part in most movies. (laughs) (laughs) But what a wonderful solution to a catastrophic problem. I want to talk about another um, a fictional monster, and this is the Incredible Hulk. Um, he's green, in case anyone doesn't know that. Uh, he's menacing, he's big, and he's hulky. But it wasn't supposed to be that way. Stan Lee came up with this kind of a, a very highly unusual superhero, for lack of a better word. When he grew up, Stan Lee, as a kid, he loved the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story a lot. So when he was trying to come up with a, a different kind of superhero... He decided he wanted to create a love, kind of a lovable monster. And he wanted it to be kind of like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where, you know, there was one side of him that was a scientist, and then he would then transform into this gigantic monster, and, and neither side could control when that would happen. So that was his concept, and he called it the Hulk. He wanted it to be gray because he wanted it to be an unusual color, And he didn't want to offend any ethnicities by picking a color that existed. So he picked gray. And he thought even gray was kind of spooky and weird. But when it was printed, every page, the Hulk was a different color. It was light gray, then dark gray, then black. And and it made him crazy. And he asked the printer, what, what was, what happened there? Why is, why is this, like, why is this failing? Why, what mistake happened in the printing process? And the printer said, gray is the toughest color. It's just a mix of different things and I can't make it consistent. So Stan Lee was facing this, you know, problem. The second issue is due to come out. And he thought, okay, what am I going to do? And he said, well, what color is failure proof? And the printer said, any color but gray. So he, uh, Stan Lee said, okay, let's make him green. Let's make him green. And Stan Lee says, that's how much time he gave it. That's how much thought he gave it. it was literally a second and a half. And that's how the Hulk became green. And when you think about the Hulk, that's that's such a huge part of its persona oh, yeah. and its brand. And, and it all came because of a printing mistake. Hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting hearing these stories, um, not only because they're just, you know, very entertaining, but also because as you tell us these stories of obstacles that turn into opportunities, it, it's it all looks rosy in retrospect, right? Like it's all like, yeah, cool. That's a great story about the Hulk. But if you're going through it, if you're in the midst of it, that rosiness isn't there. So when you're in the middle of it, uh, Terry, how do you get to that point of being able to see an opening when a door has seemingly closed? I think that's the aspect of these people that I chose to write about. They had a, they had a resilience and they had a, um, a grit that they muscled through the problem rather than running away from it. As I said earlier, they, they thought the only way out is through. So each one of these people, like Steven Spielberg and uh, Stan Lee and the Swans, all these people who faced insurmountable problems, they literally didn't run away. That, that's the key thing. They muscled through it. And then it gets to a point, because you, you have muscled through it, that you find this little shred of light in this dark tunnel and then as you run toward it you actually see that there's a hidden gift inside this mistake so for someone out there terry because again this is a collection of stories but we all experience or have to make choices about risk reward failure in life um what did it teach you about the concept of failure in doing this book and and for people out there who say you know what it ain't worth the risk I think it is worth the risk. I think the biggest risk in life is playing it safe. The big lesson 
from this book is that you have to embrace the obstacle. And by that, I mean the solution to the problem, the solution to the catastrophic event is actually sitting at the heart of the mistake. So you have to, for lack of a better uh, term, you have to peel the mistake like a banana because at the center of the mistake is the solution sitting patiently waiting for you to find it. And if you think about JAWS, that's what Spielberg did. It is a huge mistake, huge mistake in not testing out the uh, apparatus in salt water. So he peeled the mistake right down saying, if I can't have, if the shark won't work, if I don't have enough money to build another one, if I don't have enough time to build another one, if I'm stuck with this, what the hell am I going to do? So he peeled it right down to, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my career? What if you can't see the shark? And that was just sitting at the heart of that whole problem is the, the shark is broken. Let's embrace the obstacle. It's a really wonderful read. As I said, um, not just entertaining, but there's a lot of deep, deep lessons from these stories that I think um, each one of us can apply to our own um, life and lifestyle and jobs and personal life. So thanks for writing it, Terry, and thanks for talking to me. I do appreciate it a lot. Thanks for you. Thanks for having me. Terry O'Reilly is the host of CBC's Under the Influence. He's also the author of My Best Mistake. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and you are listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. So you might remember this big music trial that happened in the spring. The British singer Ed Sheeran was accused of plagiarizing a song written by the late Marvin Gaye. And at that time, Ed made a bold vow. If he was found guilty, he'd quit music for good. Well, in the end, he was found not liable. But it was a reminder that in cases like these, there's more than money at stake. Artists' integrity, creativity, and life's work are all on the line. That was certainly true of Canada's first ever music copyright case, which took place in Ontario's highest court just over 40 years ago. It pit a little-known lounge musician against a star. And while the story's largely been forgotten outside copyright law, it's long stayed on the mind of one of our producers, Pete Mitten, thanks to a little family lore. And so Pete's gone on this journey to unearth the tale and question whether it might have played out differently today. Here's Pete's documentary. What does that slightly schmaltzy, sad but sweet melody make you think of? Soft focused sunsets, candle-lit dinners with wine and roses. This is The Homecoming by Canadian musician Haygood Hardy. And for a lot of people, it still sparks warm memories, even more than 50 years after it debuted. Just look at the comments on its YouTube video. This is the song I walked down the aisle in my wedding to so long ago. I stand in amazement of this beautiful genius that brings all who hear its creation such peace and calm. Ah, oh, a true masterpiece. A masterpiece, no doubt. The most beautiful song ever created. 
The homecoming is older than I am, but I grew up hearing it. I also grew up hearing a certain story about it. A somewhat sinister story. That the homecoming wasn't by Haygood Hardy at all. That it was stolen. And that my mom knew the truth about the wronged musical genius who really composed it. Every time I hear Hey Good Hardy, I song The Homecoming, I get upset because it's so obvious to me that that's Ivan's song. Ivan Gondos was a cocktail pianist in the lounge at Deerhurst, a resort in Ontario's Muskoka cottage country that's still there today. My mother, Rosemary, worked as a chef there. It was the 70s, 1973. Everybody had a drink and Ivan was right at it. The piano lounge, honestly, sounds amazing to me, in all its 70s splendor. I see a very brown room, gold carpet. The waiters carried cork-lined trays and delivered the coffee and brandies. And Ivan sounds fairly splendiferous, too. This is him, from an album he recorded there called Ivan Plays Favorites. It was magnificent. Ivan was a large, tall Hungarian man, and he had fingers like spiders. So he would play every note on the piano, up and down. Sometimes he played both the piano and the organ at the same time. Everyone was mesmerized. And his signature tune was, well, listen for yourself. pretty darn close to Haygood Hardy's The Homecoming. Well, as far as he was concerned, that was his song. And as far as I was concerned, that was his song. Because I heard it so many times, night after night, and that'll always be Ivan's song for me. The story of Ivan's stolen song was just one of my mum's repertoire of stories from her pre-kid days at Deerhurst. I'd heard it so many times, it had sort of faded into the background, like cocktail piano music. But then, a couple of years ago, I'd found myself questioning, was a hit song from the 70s really stolen? And who was Ivan Gondos? But we really have to start with the homecoming itself. Because if you weren't around a radio in the 1970s, it could be hard to understand just how big a song this really was. 88,000 albums? Yeah, it's a lot, I guess, isn't it? A lot. That's yeah. a, it's a gold record. Yes, it's a, did you it's get a, gold. a Did you get a gold record? I got a, I got a gold record from Mayor Crombie. That's Haygood Hardy speaking with Peter Zosky on Morningside in the 80s. Hardy died in the late 1990s of lymphoma, but I did speak with someone who helped make the homecoming a hit. My name's Alexander Mayer. Uh... Al Mayer was a juggernaut in the 1970s and 80s Canadian music industry. He was Gordon Lightfoot's manager for years, and he co-founded the Attic Records label. We had 114 gold, platinum, and multi-platinum records. But Hagen Hardy was not like most of the musicians Al worked with. First, with his giant glasses and penchant for collared shirts and ties, he looked more like an accountant than a musician. He was from an establishment family. His grandfather was a judge. His great-uncle had been an Ontario premier. But 
after studying at Trinity College in Toronto, Haygood pursued his passion. Playing jazz vibraphone with some of the big names of the day in 1960s New York. By the 70s, with a young family, he'd settled back down in Toronto and found a new line of work, composing jingles for TV and radio commercials. One in particular took on a life of its own. He had had a tea commercial for Salada Tea. Salada Teas. 22 teas in one bag. That had been very popular in Canada. The tea commercial music was, of course, the homecoming. Salada. There were a series of ads with cozy scenes of people getting together for tea at grandmother's house at a church function, and they aired across Canada in heavy rotation on TV and radio. Whether or not they helped sell tea, Hardy's music hit the spot. And a number of people had got in touch uh, with the ad agency for Salada, trying to find copies of the song. Still, no record label wanted to release it, until Al. He had apparently been turned down by all the record companies in Canada, the majors that he had approached. He played it for me, and I said, I like it, I'll release it. This was the mid-70s. Popular music was hard rock and disco not easy listening instrumentals. So it took a lot of time and energy to convince Top 40 Radio to play it. And when they did, it usually went to the top five on the radio stations in popularity. It was a very moving piece of music. You know, we knew from the beginning we had a hit. Uh, It was just a matter of convincing the rest of the world. And eventually they did. The homecoming would go gold, then platinum. The Juno Award to the best composer Haygood Hardy would win Juno Awards as Composer and Instrumentalist of the Year. Haygood Hardy! It was even the best-selling sheet music in the country. And Al says the success couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Haygood was a gentleman, a charming gentleman. Uh, Everybody who knew him liked him. This is very heavy company for a kid from Oakville, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Thank you very much. This is indeed an honor. Thank you. He'd go on to compose music for movies like Anne of Green Gables and have his own CBC TV special. Hi, my name is Haygood Hardy, and I wrote a tune called The Homecoming. All thanks to that one little ditty he dashed off as a jingle for a tea commercial. But then, the pianist from Deerhurst came knocking. You probably know guys now. I couldn't Ivan somebody, was it? Ivan Gondos. Yeah. So who was Ivan Gondos? Well, if he was obscure back in the 70s, there's hardly a trace of him today. I did manage to track down an old friend and former student of his, Roy Robson. Oh yeah, he was, he had a very witty personality. He was very popular. The women loved him. (laughs) Roy's just turned 90. When I visit him at his condo in King City, north of Toronto, he says he hasn't talked about Ivan in years, but the memories are still close to the surface. Roy knew him as Louis, not Ivan. Louis Yvonne Foy Gallant Gondos. Anyway, I wanted to show you what yeah. Louis looked like. Sure. That was him. You know, I've never really seen a picture of him. There's a there's an album cover online that has a sort of black and white picture of him, I guess. But it's well, it's, of... it's this picture. 
Okay, right, 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 right. And that's the two of you. Yes. In the old photo, you can see his dark, handsome looks, his intense artist's gaze. The two first met in the 60s, when Roy wandered into a music shop in Toronto. And when I was in there looking around, I heard this music playing downstairs, an organ being played downstairs. So I asked them, who's, who's downstairs playing the organ? And they said, well, that's Louis Gondos. Would you be interested in taking some lessons? And I said, yeah. <laughs> well, that led to a great friendship, which lasted many years. Some memories stand out for Roy, like when Ivan invited him to perform a concert together after a few years of lessons. Because I said, you know, there are other people who are better musicians than I am at this point. But he said, but they're not you. So that meant something. And another, of a road trip. I took him to New York once. He wanted to go on the Johnny Carson show. But he never made arrangements here for an interview there. So they wouldn't have anything to do with him. So we drove to New York and back for no good reason. You just showed up at the... At, was and, it, and he thought he, could get, he would get on. <laughs> and that, it seems, was Ivan. An outsider, perhaps a little naive, but sure of his talent. It fits with the life story I'm able to piece together from archives and interviews today. Born in Hungary, he moves to Canada age two and shows musical promise. His parents manage to buy him a grand piano and conservatory lessons. In his early 20s, he forms a sort of orchestra of outsiders, a 64-piece classical group, mostly young people and fellow immigrants. He's quoted at the time by the Toronto Daily Star, saying his group shouldn't be looked at as amateurs. They're real professionals who, quote, haven't been able to break through the clique at the Toronto Symphony and CBC orchestras. They perform a concerto Gondos has written, dedicated to the Hungarian Revolution. And though the group disbands soon after, and Gondos finds himself playing on the cocktail circuit, he never stops composing. Years later, he tells a judge he's written 2,000 songs. Some he copyrights but not the one he says he's never quite finished tinkering with. The one that becomes his signature tune. And that he ends up fighting over in court. Gondos called it Variations on a Theme in A Minor. And his old friend Roy remembers the day he heard it on the radio, played by someone else. He was on his way to work as an elementary school principal. There was a Salada Tea commercial. I heard this commercial on my way to school one morning, and I thought, that sounds like, sounds so familiar. I, I said, the Salada Tea commercial sounds like something you might have written. He phoned me back later the same day, and he said, Roy, that is my music. My mom had a similar moment when she heard it a few years later. I thought, oh, great. Hey, good has given royalties to Ivan so he could record that song. And, you know, there was no internet then. You couldn't look something up. But I bought a copy of The Homecoming, and there was nothing there about Ivan. There wasn't any reference. And I was just very angry. And so was Ivan Gondos, angry enough to file suit against Hardy, though not until several years had passed in 1981. 
The delay likely came down to finding a lawyer. A Deerhurst regular and friend finally took on the case. Roy Robson was a star witness in court, saying he'd heard Ivan play the song many years before the tea commercial aired. No doubt in your mind that it was, uh, that it was his song. Oh, definitely his song. There's another reason it took Ivan so long to launch the case, and something that made him finally go for it. Ivan Gondos was dying of cancer. In fact, by the time the trial was scheduled, his doctor told him he shouldn't appear in court. But his lawyer had an idea. He booked a suite of rooms at the top of the Weston Hotel in Toronto and convinced the judge to hold court there with Ivan's doctor and nurses on hand. Apparently, it was a legal first in Canada. Defense lawyer Ken Cancellara was there. Peter, I'm telling you, it's, it's been 40, 42 years, 40 years, whatever. But I can visualize virtually every moment of the portion of the trial where we examined and cross-examined him on the top floor of the Western Hotel downtown Toronto because he needed to have a medical supervision at all times. And that's how the trial of Gondos v. Hardy got underway, with the plaintiff literally on his deathbed. I've had hundreds of trials involving everything, every possible issue you can think of. I've never seen or been involved in or heard of anything that resembled the scenario that we saw that morning. Virtually all the transcripts from the trial have been lost. But one day last summer, at the Archives of Ontario, I opened a box to find the yellowed court reporter's notes from that morning's testimony 42 years ago. It shows that Gondos was weak and at times in pain, taking breaks every 15 minutes, but still defiant. Take this exchange. When a lawyer asks him if he's ever been asked to play Haygood Hardy's The Homecoming at the Deerhurst Piano Lounge. Have I been asked by people to play The Homecoming at Deerhurst? Yes. Numerous occasions. And did you play it? Well, I corrected them and said, this is the original version, the original piece. It is most embarrassing on occasion. And which piece did you play? Did you play your variation or did you play The Homecoming? The only one I know was my own piece. I didn't play The Homecoming. I said, this is the original piece. I started looking for others who had testified on Ivan's behalf. But 40 years on, several have died. Others have seemingly vanished. One, a semi-retired lawyer named Gesta Abels, invited me to his beautiful, art-filled home overlooking the big pond in Toronto's High Park. And Gesta reached back in his memory half a century to his piano lessons with Ivan. Uh, he was very energetic. Uh, he could uh, razzle-dazzle on the piano. And when I would go for um, my music classes in the basement uh, of, of the studio there, uh, he would often be practicing, and it was a large space, and you could sit around and you could listen to him play. That's where Gesta says he first heard the melody. And no doubt in your mind that that was the song that you heard him? Uh, yeah, no doubt. To this day, there's no doubt in my mind. Because I heard it many times in the basement. He would play it. He liked it. He played it. It was a lovely melody. Another witness for Ivan at the trial was John Arena, a legendary restaurateur in Toronto. He was the owner of Winston's, a fine dining restaurant popular with politicians, businessmen, and celebrities. Like Liberace... 
John Wayne, uh, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, all those people. John Arena was 98 years old when we spoke, still proud of his legacy at Winston's, which he said was more than a restaurant. It, it, was, a, it was a state of mind. People loved to be there. And for a few years in the 60s, Ivan Gondos was the piano player there. But you remembered Ivan playing that piece of music, that melody that, that sounded... Yes, I do, yes. John testified at the trial that Ivan played his melody there so often that John came to call it Winston's theme. The Winston theme, that's right. Another witness for Ivan was an artist, Marcello Febo, who said that he was actually there sometime in the late 1950s when Ivan first wrote the melody. Febo died a few years ago, but this is his widow, Eileen. Yeah, I was at the trial uh, because my husband was a witness there. Yes. Remarkable. He, he knew, like, Ivan Gondas was a best friend of his for years. Their friendship was tested, though, when Ivan ran off with Marcello's first wife in the mid-70s. Even so, when Gondos went to court a few years later, Marcello Febo showed up to testify on his behalf. Marcello was definitely on Ivan's side, not because he was a friend, but because he believed he did write it, you know? Roy, Gesta, John, and even Marcello were all certain that the homecoming melody was really Ivan's song and that they'd heard it years before. But at the trial, Hardy's lawyer hammered home the idea that these people couldn't be sure of what they'd heard years ago. These were everyday people, a school principal, a lawyer, a restaurateur, and a painter. They weren't musical experts. There is quite a bit of research about how people remember music and how well they remember it. It's an argument that likely wouldn't work in court today, according to McGill University neuroscientist, author, and music producer Dan Levitin, who has acted as a consultant in music plagiarism trials, including the case of Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. He says we better understand now just how powerfully the brain does remember music. There have now been dozens of studies and a lot of confirmations of it that the average person with no musical training can remember rich details of songs that they like and enjoy. For example, uh, two-thirds of people, non-musicians, tend to remember the actual pitches, the absolute pitch of a song, not just starting it on any old note. They know what note it started on. Even if they can't name it and say, oh, well, that was an F sharp, they, can, right? they can sing it. Uh, and they tend to remember the tempo. Ivan's lawyer didn't just rely on people's memories to make his case, though. He also introduced some tangible evidence. Sheet music that Gondos had supposedly photocopied in the 1960s, a full decade before the Salada Tea commercial, and given to his piano students. It showed his melody as part of a larger work, which he called the Children's Suite. See, Louis gave me a whole copy of the Children's Suite, as far as he had written it at that point. And Roy Robson was just one of his former students who submitted a Xerox copy as evidence. I couldn't play it. It was too complicated. But anyway, that's where the homecoming theme appeared. He gave it to you when? I, that's what they asked me, and I don't remember when. It was, it was shortly after I started taking lessons from him. Which was? I mean, it must have been in the early 60s. Okay. Yeah. Well before the 1970s. Oh, yeah. 
This ended up being a pivotal piece of evidence when one of the opposing lawyers challenged the date of the Xerox copy. Lawyer Ken Cancellara, who worked on the trial, recalls it was one of his colleagues who launched the attack. But it was brilliant because the long and the short of it, he found through an expert who testified at trial that, in fact, uh, the Xerox copy that Gondos had said had been written by him in 1965 could not have been done in 1965 because Xerox didn't have that kind of paper. And he found out that there were some, some markings on the paper that indicated to him that this was at the very earliest, 1974 to 1976. I tried for months to find a copy of the copy, but like so much else from this trial, it seems to be lost to time. To this day, Roy Robson maintains that his copy was the real thing. Oh, they said well, I was lying. They said I was lying about the music and the how it was printed and when it was printed. What, why would I lie? I took an oath to not lie. Everything I said was the truth. So what did Ivan Gondos make of all of this? Well, Gondos didn't hear any of this testimony from his friends or former students. He never learned the judge's decision because Ivan Gondos was dead. Less than a month after that testimony in the hotel suite, Ivan died, aged 47. He left five children and virtually no assets, only his grand piano to his name. But his widow kept the case going, in a real courthouse now, where experts sparred over whether the two pieces of music were truly the same. The judge in the end agreed that Ivan's variations and Hardy's homecoming were the same song. But that's only halfway to proving musical plagiarism in court. Ivan's lawyer would also need to show access, that Hardy, at some point, had heard Gondos play it. I was a, uh, an agent for one time, and I got him playing at Sutton Place. So it's all my fault. If you hadn't been there, this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> that's Roy Robson again. Ruining the day, he got Ivan a gig at Stop 33, the top-floor restaurant at Toronto's swanky Sutton Place Hotel. Our suites have been home away from home for such people as prime ministers, royalty, and some of the world's premier performers who come to Toronto to entertain. Eileen Febo remembers the place well. It was a lounge. I used to go there, too, that way back when. <laughs> and... Um... That's probably where Haygood Hardy heard the music, I think, or Marcello thought, but not necessarily uh, plagiarizing it. He just, it was in his head and he thought he wrote it, maybe. Which is exactly what Ivan's lawyers argued, that on the night of September 25th, 1970, Haygood Hardy, who also sometimes played at Stop 33, was in the audience that he even came up after to compliment Ivan on his original tune, his variations. And one day, a year or two later, as Haygood was trying to think of just the right music to help sell a cozy cup of tea, the melody spilled out. But at trial... Haygood denied he'd ever been there that fateful night, denied he'd ever heard Ivan play. Moreover, he said he had an alibi that night. 
He'd been working late at a recording studio, doing a Rice Krispies commercial. And that, for the judge, seemed to be enough. The dodgy Xerox hadn't helped Ivan's credibility, nor had questions that were raised about when Ivan made his recording of the song at Deerhurst, before or after he'd heard the Salada tea commercial. So the judge sided with Hardy. There was no access, and therefore no plagiarism. Two Toronto musicians had simply written the same song, and it was a coincidence. The court decided that there was no copyright infringement, notwithstanding the similarity between the works. Quite the coincidence in the end. <laughs> Quite the coincidence. That's Karis Craig, a professor at Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto, who still teaches the case of Gondos v. Hardy to her students today. Right? So this is the problem, and it's, again, something that comes up a lot in the application of the infringement doctrine. In Gondos and Hardy, what had happened was... Partly because of the way the case turned on that concept of access. You know, when we're looking at the Gondos and Hardy case, you're saying, OK, he was playing at the Sutton Place Hotel on this day. Was this other guy like sitting at the table or was he not sitting at the table? Did he have that conversation or was it just some other guy that looked like him? The idea of access is still there in plagiarism cases today, but the Internet has turned it on its head. When a lesser-known artist sues Ed Sheeran or Katy Perry now, they don't need to prove that the star had seen them play live. Their music is on YouTube or TikTok, where it's assumed that anyone in the world has access to it. So you can't be like, I wasn't at the Sutton Place Hotel that night. Like, that's not going to help you, right? And that's kind of why the Gundas case is, is fun, because it's, it pulls out the legal issue, but in a scenario that almost couldn't happen anymore. And it says, like, this is profoundly important, but now you think it couldn't go that way. Which is why, more often than not these days, small-time musicians who allege they've been infringed will be given a songwriting credit on the hit. Though that's not what happened with Ivan Gondos. Still, looking back on the decision that's shaped Canadian music law for 40 years now, Karis Craig believes the judge did get it right. I don't think that anyone composing music could... You know, we can't uh, open their brain and see inside. They themselves don't know exactly how they came up with um, the particular refrain or the melody. Like, I think that, you know, creativity in any context is a sort of cumulative process. There's always inspiration. There's always input. You can't un um, hear things. <laughs> and if we really were, you know, um, strident in our protection of original musical composition, I think it would just dramatically chill downstream creators. There was one court exhibit which, somewhat miraculously, did survive, and I wanted to play it for my mom. At one point, Hardy's lawyers wheeled a grand piano into the courtroom, and a local musician started to play. He played one piece after another. Number two. A French pop song from the 60s, Three. A movie score by an Argentinian composer. Number five. A jazz standard that Ivan himself sometimes played. The real cherry on top was a piece written by Vivaldi more than 400 years ago.
as you can hear, all these melodies sound just like Ivan's and sound just like Haygood's. Hearing that, in a way, kind of breaks my heart to think that that melody line was already out there because I've certainly always attributed it to Ivan. That, to me, that's Ivan's song. So to hear that tells me that the bones already probably existed and it, it's kind of heartbreaking. I wanted to attribute it to Ivan. Now, I didn't set out to break my mom's heart, of course. I wanted to see if her story was true. And I looked for a smoking gun, but nothing turned up. As for me, I think it's quite possible that Haygood Hardy heard Ivan play the melody at Winston's or the Sutton Place or an airport hotel bar and unconsciously copied him later. I think it's possible, too, that Ivan heard the Salada Tea commercial and copied part of Hardy's work, improving his earlier melody. I did speak with Haygood Hardy's family who say they'd rather not give an interview for this project. The trial was a difficult time, and they believe it contributed to his cancer and death some years later. Ivan's family, too, believes the fight over this melody ended his life early, which makes it all the more remarkable that today, this piece of music that meant so much back then has been mostly forgotten. Haygood's original version isn't even on Spotify today, let alone Ivan's self-made recordings. And the people who remember the story are fading away too. Al Mayer and John Arena have passed away since I spoke with them. My mom just wishes that Ivan had done what she does when she writes a little music. Send a copy to yourself in the mail and stick it in a filing cabinet. Ivan didn't do that. Ivan was the filing cabinet. He carried it around in his soul all of the time. It just flowed and poured out of him all the time. I mean, all of a sudden, he would just play something incredible that we'd never heard before. Maybe he used some of the classic composers that had influenced him. Nevertheless, at that moment, that was his song. And that's that's what we heard. So... I'll leave things off with the one and only recording of Ivan's voice I was able to unearth. Live from the lounge at Deerhurst, here he is. So I'm just going to play my theme. It's called I'll Be Seeing You. And uh, that's my wish to you. That documentary was produced by The Sunday Magazine's Pete Mitten and CBC's Audio Documentary Unit.
And with that, we've come to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine podcast. Thanks to our producers, Sarah Joyce Battersby, Tracy Fuller, Levi Garber, Andrea Huang, Pete Mitten, and Ronde Williams. Our senior producer is Brian Colton. Our executive producer is Donna Dingwall. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear here on the Sunday Magazine podcast. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.